Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. In that moment when diagnosis, I was then watching the doctor text a doctor in Toronto to find out if there was a spot in this clinical trial, and there was. And so and that, that fear and terror and hopelessness suddenly had hope. And in a no-hope scenario, when you have hope, it is literally everything. Sure, there are days and moments where I'm concerned and checking myself for changes, and there have been changes. But I have far more hope than I do fear. Today on the podcast, we are pleased to welcome on Chris Snow, the Assistant General Manager with the NHL's Calgary Flames. Snow earned dual degrees in magazine from Newhouse and policy studies from Maxwell in the class of 2003. He enjoyed a successful career as a print journalist before transitioning to a front office role in the NHL, first with the Minnesota Wild and now with the Flames. Then, on June 17, 2019, Snow was diagnosed with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Snow was given one year to live, 18 months as a best case scenario, but we are pleased to report that here we are, more than 18 months later, and Chris is still here with us, still fighting this degenerative disease, thanks to an experimental gene therapy. Chris, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you holding up these days? John, when I hear an introduction like that, and I look around my office and see that I'm at work, and I'm active with my kids outdoors, and closer to normal than not, uh, really well, really well. You know, it's hard to um, <laughs> it's hard to talk about normalcy in in any regard here in, in 2021 with COVID and the way that that has ravaged our day-to-day lives. But, you know, for, for you in particular, with your role with the Flames, before we get into your fight against ALS, I want to find out how you've had to do your job differently, given all these virtual landscapes and challenges of COVID. I think it was a good opportunity for us and really any business to say, you know, how, how can we step back and assess how we do what we do? And for us, we could be a heavily, uh, you know, scheduled uh, operation around games practices and all of a sudden we had neither and so I think we really became a uh, more of an information gathering operation so our scouts were doing a lot more in the way of background work uh, assessing what they knew about players as individuals we all of a sudden were watching a great deal more video to affirm or not when we thought about uh, players who could acquire our own team and I think our, our, our communication one-on-one, believe it or not, enhanced because when you're around so daily, you can just kind of say hello and then go off into your thing. And in this case, we did so many more FaceTimes, Zooms that never happened before. And I think our overall kind of just uh, protocols, they actually improved. We'll get a little bit more in-depth, Chris, into your responsibilities as the assistant GM, but I'm sure it feels good to have hockey back, I know, you know, we all 
we've taken so many things for granted during this pandemic, uh, you know, sports included, you know, in-person gatherings, being with family. How nice has it been? The Flames have three games into their season. Uh, they're two and one so far, a pair of nice wins over Vancouver uh, after dropping a heartbreaker in OT uh, to Winnipeg to start off the season. Just how nice and how refreshing has it been to see the boys back on the ice and the season back underway? It's been so good. You know, we're all looking for ways to find joy, ways to find connection, uh, ways to pass the time, and ways to entertain and sorts to all of those things. Now, it's really odd to go into a rink uh, like last night, sit in a, a suite that normally has fans in it, and there's, you know, less than 100 people, players included, in that building. Um, but I think just, just to be able to provide our community you know, something that they really enjoyed, that they can't enjoy quite the same way yet, but that they can they can see on TV, they can talk about. Uh, it's, it's nice to just be a part of uh, bringing that back. Well, when speaking of, of moments of joy, I want to take you back. There was a, a tweet you had put out, you know, right before, right around the Christmas holidays. And we all know the holidays are special. We celebrate being with our friends and family. And this Christmas was different. We all had to find different ways to celebrate with our our loved ones, but it really seemed like this Christmas was very gratifying for you. And your tweet was very poignant when you said Christmas 2019 was supposed to be your last, but thankfully it wasn't pure gratitude. How can you describe just how special this past Christmas was to have with your family? Well, I I think the holidays are either a time of great joy or for anyone who's had significant loss uh, in their lives, a time of pain and sorrow and, and just uh, really a, a highlighting of the fact that you're, you're missing something. And so last year when we had Christmas, there was a, you know, a fear that, you know, that could be our last one. And so this year it, it was not my last one. And on top of that, you know, we couldn't see family, we couldn't even see friends here in Calgary due to the uh, gathering uh, restrictions. And so you know, we, we played card games. We watched uh, Christmas movies every night. Uh, we skated. And so those, those kind of small things are enormous to our family. And you know, just to sit there kind of in the corner of the house one, one afternoon, I guess it was Christmas Eve, and watch the kids decorate cookies with my wife. Um, and I could have sat there for hours and hours to watch that. Everything takes on a new meaning you know, during COVID, but especially under, you know, your circumstances. I mean, it's, it's your, your fighting spirit has been remarkable the way, and we're going to segue into your uh, diagnosis and your, your treatment here with, with ALS. Um, I, I know that it, I can't imagine what you were going through um, back in the summer of 2019. Can you take us back to that summer and what really led you to think that something was, was, was wrong uh, leading up to that diagnosis? Sure. In, in the spring that year, I, I was just feeling a kind of weakness uh, in the outer half of my right hand. And after we lost the playoffs, I, I went to see our doctor because the, the days before that, it had just really become obvious. And ALS is a process of elimination diagnosis. So it took six, seven appointments before they finally said, we think this is motor neuron disease. And when they said that, that was, that was in early June. It's just, it's a total death sentence. I, I looked at my wife and she's just, you know, crying and, and bent over and you're thinking, 
this is completely unfair to her, completely unfair to the kids. And I cannot believe this is happening for a, a fifth time in two generations of men in my family. And there was a seven day period from June 10th to the 17th when we thought it was ALS to we knew it was ALS. And I, I think back on then, and I don't know how we did those seven days and, and the days after that. Uh, we, I, I worked early in those days. I went home and Tanya had the kids from school, went for a yeah, bike ride with them each of those days. And you just, you do the things you're supposed to do because that's, that's what you do. And, and yet when I was diagnosed, the doctor in Miami said, uh, this is the bad news, but the good news is that there's a clinical trial and he, he didn't want to give me hope that perhaps would not be realized. But the takeaway was that this was the most promising thing to come along. And thankfully the, the, the blessing within the curse of, of my genetic, uh, in genetically inherited uh, form of this disease is that it was the first discovered genetic cause. And so it was the first that scientists, researchers got their hands on. And so in that moment when diagnosis, I was then watching the doctor text a doctor in Toronto to find out if there was a spot in this clinical trial, which operates all over North America. And there was. And so you know, that, that fear and terror and hopelessness suddenly had hope. And in a no hope scenario, when you have hope, it is literally everything. And so from that moment on, uh, and I thought of this yesterday for some reason, there was only one moment where I really felt scared and hopeless. And I would say, sure, there are days and moments where I'm concerned and checking myself for changes, and there have been changes, but I have far more hope than I do fear. I tip my hat to you and your whole family for the, the, the strength that you guys have, have displayed. And this can't be easy to, like you said, receive this death sentence in, and try to carry a way forward. How big of a role has your family, especially, you know, Kelsey and your two kids, how big of a role have they played in being that essential support system to, to get you through those low times? Oh, it's immense. I, I can't even quantify that. Uh, my, my wife, through her, I'd say, research and doing all the talking to the doctors and providing me real hope rooted in real science uh, has been incredibly helpful. Her vlogging about this and really giving us a, a, a cause, like a reason to make this a worthwhile thing to go through um, has said, especially in Canada, where she is well followed by the, the NHL, you know, as a family league, people, uh, agents, media, everyone. Uh, it, it's given us purpose and it's allowed us to get so much feedback from individuals who are sick, who have lost uh, parents, siblings, spouses to say, Thank you. That, that's really made this worthwhile for us. And the kids, they just bring energy. You know, every single moment at home, they want to play, they want to read, they want to do things. And when Alice is quiet, that's when, you know, for anyone, any mind can wander. And in this case, the house is, 
it is never quiet. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's one of the unforeseen blessings of uh, of COVID too. Is is yeah, you've got your kids around you all the time. You've got the exactly. work from home office. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There were some slammed doors once in a while, but for the most part, that was quite a positive thing for us. <laughs> well, and, and again, Chris, it's great to hear, you know, it's great to hear you, 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 you laughing about it uh, and, and really kind of reminiscing fondly about the, the pillars in your family. I, I, when I read somewhere that, and you mentioned earlier, this is, this is the fifth generation in your family. And, and this is a, mm. a, a, a disease that unfortunately is inherent and, and appears in, in more in families. If it's, if it's there a couple of times, there's more likelihood of it to, to repeat itself. Did you ever have that moment where it's, you're thinking, Oh, come on. Why me? After all that this has done to take, you know, your, your father, your two uncles and your cousin, did you ever have that kind of moment? Um, I tried to think that way. I really, I really thought first of my family, um, and the inherent unfairness there, uh, the kids, my wife. So uh, momentarily, I suppose, but I, I said to my wife, and it sounds kind of crazy, but if I can, if I can beat this or live a really long time with it and have a, you know, an decent quality of life, then the good that we can do with this outweighs the bad that I'll have to go through and that I have gone through. And I, I do think that for Really, since I went on this experimental drug in July of 2019, I would say I had one period of real kind of loss and decline, really this fall, when um, kind of all at the same time, the muscles of the face that kind of affect uh, smiling and and, uh, swallowing, those being two separate functions, obviously, and then, and then along with it, because it's just kind of uh, collateral damage, the, the fact that my lips aren't quite the same, and so certain sounds on talking aren't the same. Aside from those, I have been, I would say, stable for the entirety of, of the time under the treatment. And so I, I feel that if this gets worse, it's going to happen quite slowly. And as my wife says, all I have to do is keep you around for three or five years and the science is going so quickly right now that uh, I think there'll be a point at which, you know, I totally can level off someday or perhaps regain something. And so, you know, we all want to cause in life and this is not fun, uh, not fun for my family, not fun for me. But at the end of the day, if we can do real good here, then, you know, that, that that's not the worst thing in the world. Now, you mentioned, Chris, uh, that there was um, a glimmer of hope that came about um, just given your family's history. And there was a discovery of a mutation of the SOD1 gene. Can you give us a little insights into how that discovery of the mutation, how that was, quote unquote, good news, how that has led to this, um, the trial that you're in and, and maybe a feeling of, OK, we've got a shot to like your, your wife so poignantly put it she wants you to be the first person to live with ALS rather than die from it. Well, there's, I think, an unknown number of causes of the disease, genetic and otherwise. And the fact that this was the first identified genetic cause uh, allowed researchers to get out of this first. And so, you know, the trial that I'm in, PRESO-D1, 
the same style trials, same nature drug, same drug maker is now to apply to a cause called C9. And so while my cause is only accounting for 2% of all ALS cases, C9 I think is five or 7%. So it's fully but surely not fast enough, sadly, for those who don't have an SOD1 or C9 cause, uh, these causes we identified, and I think the science will, will, will find a way. And if we look right now at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, these vaccines are by far the most effective ever developed. And, and they will be applied now in the style of, of vaccines we apply to other things, not just COVID, no doubt. And so they do the same with ALS as they, as they figure out what is going on to cause this. Uh, they'll find ways to cure it. Uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, they're all in the same, essentially in the same family. And so you know, that's why we're supporting research with all of our fundraising, because while you know, taking care of those who are sick is, is so important, research is our priority because it will prevent uh, people from getting sick. And those are really words to, um, that are music to everyone's ears if we're able to continue. And, and yeah, you're right to look at COVID and the remarkable rapidity of the development of those vaccines. And, and it gives us hope that modern science can one day, yeah, not just find a way to treat, but to prevent these diseases mm-hmm. from, from occurring. And, and I want, if you don't mind, Chris, give us a little bit of insights into this experimental gene therapy what it is, how it works, and how it's slowing the progression um, of this disease. So uh, I'll kind of give a simplified version, but uh, essentially I have a, a misfolded protein um, that, that causes the death of neuron cells. And you know the brain cannot communicate with muscles and they die. And in the case of what I'm receiving, it is essentially designed to interfere with and halt um, that process that is, is not a good one inside of me. And it's delivered via a monthly spinal tap injection, uh, like an epidural, uh, once every four weeks. And it, it, it goes in very low uh, in the vac. And the reason, one theory at least, the reason perhaps that I've had this uh, facial and swelling progression, but no change in my right uh, arm of how it started, which is, is incredible, is uh, the, the medicine has to travel through the, the body's natural kind of circulation pathway to the brain. And the nerves that are not quite working as well in my face and throat are the highest nerves of the body. And so, you know, our next step might be creating a pump that pushes it. Um, honestly, I've gone kind of like full possum on those injection days and, and been lying upside down for seconds of the day to try to kind of force that medication uh, to areas that it might not be properly hitting. And so, you know, with each of these steps, this is again, not unlike the, uh, the vaccine discussion, this is version 1.0. Version 2.0, you'll find a way to enhance, and so on and so forth. Um, and right now, for that matter, the, the people in uh, Miami who do 
probably the best familial ALS research out there. They are about to start a trial in which they will give my medication to uh, SOD1 gene carriers who are not sick to see if they can stop this before it happens. And so there's a real partnership here, I think, undoubtedly, among doctors, researchers, uh, and drug manufacturers to uh, to figure this out. It, it's not a race. It's uh, it, it's very much a passing of any and all knowledge on to do this collectively. Given the diagnosis of you know what you had said it you know, being a death sentence when you did get that initial diagnosis in June of 19 to be here now with us 18 months later, and you're going through, you know, like you've said earlier, there, there's, there's no change to, to a lot of the, the symptoms that you might expect there to be changes and to be some falling back on how you're able to, you know, use you know, your body and the way the disease progresses. Does it feel like a miracle the way that things have been able to stabilize and, 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 and the progress that's been made so far? Oh, it's absolutely it's, it's It's said to us that way by our doctors on a regular basis. I go in for these uh, monthly doses, and part of that is muscle testing. And I have a pretty strong guy who does those tests, and, and he is sweating. And he can't, you know, he's trying to push down on an extended arm, an extended leg, uh, and he can't. And I'll say, Chris, I have never been unable to, quote, unquote, break a patient like he can always break that plane and he can't and that's the absolute fact that i hear every single month um my breathing test results two different tests are pushing the 90th and 100th percentile and that's that's just not heard of and so i think the answer is absolutely yes and at the same time you know you can lose perspective and get greedy you know you want to be healthy you want it all and so I think uh, I found those two sentiments. And without question, the days that I went on the outdoor rink or at that uh, treatment thing, getting physically tested and, and, and winning, those are the moments that I feel really like my old self. We, we are so happy to hear that you continue to, to not be broken, if you will. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think those are wise words for, for everybody in any walk of life to not let what you're dealing with break you. But literally, in your sense, it's, it's, it's remarkable and it's, it's really impressive and inspiring to hear. And I know, I know, Chris, that you gave a lot of credit to your wife and your awesome, beautiful kids, um, Cohen and Willa, who have been around to maintain your sense of normalcy. But a lot of it comes down to you too and your mental approach. How are you able to stay optimistic and have that positive attitude and outlook? I have always been an optimist. I've always uh, believed that there's a way to a way to do whatever you're gonna do. I, I walked into our GM's office one day and I said a few years ago, and I said, uh, there's always a way. And he said, whenever you walk in and start with a line that's not the movie title, I feel good. And so, <laughs> so that that's kind of I think how it was. But I, I think that and you look, you only have two choices. Like one, you're gonna wallow and you're gonna think this is the end of the world and that's not a way you can function. And the other way is you say, I'm gonna <clears throat> live today just like I lived yesterday and until I'm unable to uh, do what I've always done. And I've taken that approach and thankfully the medicine 
the science, the what I think is coming, the ability to to raise awareness and raise hope and have a purpose. That that's all allowing me to really take every day um, as a good one and a positive one. And, and honestly, I have it sounds silly. I have very little complaint about today relative to where I should be, which is not here. And so I, you know, I'm just grateful. I love the, the, the fact, by the way, you guys have adopted, uh, is it snowy strong? Is that our hashtag we're going with for this? Uh, yeah, the team, the team kind of did that. I think, uh, you know, in hockey, everyone has a nickname and mine is snowy. And, uh, so they chose that a while back and it's, uh, I liked it. I appreciate that. The way that the flames and the NHL and just everyone in general in, in, in your sport and your profession, how has everyone kind of rallied around this cause to support you while you're going through this, this battle? I'm really fortunate there. You know, I, I say this often that it can sound cliche to the outside, but sports teams are, are, are a family. Uh, and that's in large part because the majority of us, whether we're front office, coaches, players, we're not living in the city that we were from. We don't have our family beyond uh, spouses and kids with us. And so you, you wind up sharing holidays with each other, you wind up sharing nights and weekends with each other. And so I've had, you know, the right culture uh, to have support. And then, you know, specifically this organization, it's, it's 10 years I've worked here now and a lot of the people are the same. And they've just given me every, every opportunity to do the job the way I want to do it uh, with the same level of responsibility, which I want. And uh, just little things. Our GM last week said, would it be helpful if you had a recliner in the suite where we watch games? Because I know it's easier for you to talk as you can lean back. And so, you know, I've just been here a long time. And I'm glad that I'm not working in a place where I've only been for two or three years. uh, Because I genuinely have people who care and uh, who know my family. And that kind of connectedness, connectivity has really, uh, you know, alleviated some of what could be the stresses or challenges and just made us feel very, very at ease going about this the way that we want to. For the Syracuse alumni and the non-alumni that are listening to our podcast, Chris, what are the best ways people can get involved and support you and help raise money for this, uh, to fight this disease? I go to our site, Calgary Flames dot com slash snowy strong uh you can read our story there in fact on the flames homepage, there's a link to my wife's blog and it's really tremendous she's written nearly 20 entries uh that have have, have taken i think a real meaning for anyone who has gone through anything challenging she writes about the disease yes but she writes about family and she writes about emotions she writes about fear and so um, the one I would say is that we, we, have, we have raised a great deal of money, uh, about 265000 And 200000 went to a trial of Votigin at Sunny River Hospital in Toronto, where I was first treated. 65000 has gone to the University of Miami. And Miami has a special place in our hearts through the fact that they saw my dad, they saw my cousin, they diagnosed me, helped him enroll me in this trial and so any, any donations that you would like consider 
uh, we'd love to see them go to Miami because they are in the States and they are working so hard at dealing with familial ALS and trying to, you know, stop this from happening with the next generation, my kids, uh, other people's kids. We will again include those links in the text with our podcast, but it's calgaryflames.com slash snowy strong. Also, again, the, the your wife's blog is Kelsey Snow Writes dot com it's it's powerful there's some great images here and testimonials as to you know the strength that she is displaying uh, alongside you chris while you're going through this this battle there's there's no easy way to make the segue i'm going to attempt here um but mm-hmm. i'm gonna do it anyway because we're we're bold and adventurous on the podcast <laughs> and, and we're talking about you making history and, and trying to lead the charge of being the first person to to beat als on a much smaller scale, but just as important, you had such a fascinating journey going from being a print journalist to getting into the NHL. Um, how did you make that transition uh, from being somebody who worked for you know in Minnesota and you worked at the Boston Globe, you worked for the Star Tribune, to getting a front office role in the NHL? Tell us about that transition. It was all due to a relationship, and I guess most jobs are. Um, when I was writing about the wild uh, for the Star Tribune as my first job out of out of Syracuse, uh, I, I left that a year and a half in to go home to Boston to write about the Red Sox. And the several nights before I, I, I left for good, I went over to the house of the GM of the Wild, Doug Rysrow, and we had dinner. And he would always have kind of thoughtful conversations because he's a He's a thinker, he's a storyteller, he's a reader, he's just uh, an interesting guy. And so he said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, maybe you write about baseball or hockey again. And he said, well, it was like when George Costanza is talking about being a baseball broadcaster. And Jerry says, well, those are often for ex-ball players or people in broadcasting. And he said, well, you can't coach because you didn't play, but I do think there's a place for you in management. And that really stuck in my head. And about a year and a half into covering the Red Sox, I wasn't a loving, I guess, the uh, the baseball beat. I missed hockey, which is really what it was. I missed, I missed the game of hockey. And uh, I had a few job offers, one at Sports Illustrated, one at Yahoo. And I went to Doug for advice, and he presented this fourth option of the Wilds Director of Hockey Operations. And I was just paralyzed. It took three weeks from a month to decide. Ultimately, uh, went to Minnesota to cover a Twins Red Sox series of all things. And he's, we had coffee it was, uh, in June. And the discussion started, let's say, a month or two earlier. And he said, you have to decide. And so the next morning, I drove to the wild offices, still undecided, and decided as I walked in the door. And what I covered the Red Sox game that night, and you know, Theo Epstein and Terry Francona said, Well, I guess anyone can work in hockey, like, absolutely anyone. And so off I went. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was kind of the neatest and most bizarre day of my life. How, how would you describe what exactly your job is and what duties the assistant GM fulfills? Hockey has kind of caught up in the last five years with the other sports in, in the use of data to, uh, you know, inform decision making. And so any primary responsibility is to lead our data uh, analysis group, 
uh, which is, you know, people who build databases, uh, build a website to organize that, uh, our artificial intelligence guys, our video analysts. So I spent a lot of time overseeing and working with them and then communicating our findings to the coaches and to the front office. Um, in the last couple of years, and it's been enjoyable, that's been more uh, work in player identification, both pro and amateur for the draft. Uh, I negotiate our player contracts. And, and really, I just, I just view myself as the kind of information synthesizer in the office. Uh, you know, we have a lot of close to probably 50 staff, office coaches here in the AHL, scouts, player development, and I view it as my responsibility to find a way to connect all of their skill sets in an organized way uh, on, on a great computer system so that everything we do is really streamlined and we get the best out of everyone. So it's, it's really enjoyable because I get to participate in really every aspect of what goes on for us uh, throughout the entire year. Clearly, these are skills that you honed uh, studying magazine and policy studies at Syracuse, right? <laughs> Bill Coughlin uh, <laughs> used to give me the hardest time for not caring about his class at all because of the DO. And I recall one time I asked for an extension of two days. He said, take a week, take a month. You don't care anyway. And so <laughs> the, the funny thing is the, you know, the Excel spreadsheet skills that I first was exposed to and, and started to learn in his class, uh, I then utilized when covering the wild to keep my own statistics. And Doug Rice used to say that it sounded like I was taking the salary arbitration each time we talked. And so, <laughs> Professor Colson, I was not wasting either of our time. <laughs> it's great. It's great the, the analogy, and you can bring it back to uh, <laughs> to Professor Copeland's awesome classes in in, in Maxwell. What uh, what drew you to Syracuse in the first place when you were coming out of high school? Well, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I had written for the school paper in high school for three or four years. I had worked for a city. Uh, pay for two and gotten paid to do that. And and so I, I, I kind of identified uh, Boston University, Northwestern, and, and Syracuse. And I applied early to Syracuse. So when I got in, I just, I knew I wanted to go there. And so it was a, it was an early decision. It was an easy decision. Besides the uh, capabilities in, in Excel spreadsheets from Professor Copeland, <laughs> What are, what are some other valuable lessons uh, and, and words of wisdom that have stuck with you from your days at Syracuse? Well, to be honest, I, I don't want to uh, take any credit away from the university because it was terrific. But I really felt that the Daily Orange was, was my education. Um, we, we taught each other. Uh, you know, Dave Curtis and Dave Levithal were a year older than I was, and I looked up to them for the internships they were getting. Um, Jeff Fasson and Craig Fisher for a year ahead, um, and, which actually really stays in Dave, probably older, older than that. Um, but the, the four of them were kind of the, the initial wave of Syracuse journalists who were doing things that it's really hard to do. And, and then my year, uh, I was able to kind of come in and learn from them. And, and after that, Eli Saslow, um, Chico Harlan, you know, I crossed, I left out, but shouldn't, 
absolutely mentioned him as a, as a mentor and a friend. Um, this was a remarkable time in Syracuse. Adam Kilgore was, was a year behind. And so we, we really were kind of, I think, a generation of um, people to deal who each year helped the next. And the, the, the newspaper is that we internet were asking us, who's next? And so I, I think that the, you know, the late nights and AM hours <laughs> that were sent to the TO and the friendships, those were uh, life-changing and career-defining without question. What does it mean to you to get to call yourself an alum? Well, I'm very proud of that. You know, I, I lived back in Syracuse and uh, it was, you know, I went to a, a private high school, Catholic high school that wanted being at that time, the best decision I had ever made because I had made many because I was, you know, 14 years old. And then Syracuse became uh, the next best decision. You know, I, I, I get still in the mail last week, uh, Tassin, Bishop, and Rothstein sending fresh oysters because that's the one, you know, real dinner food I can still eat uh, by mouth since I got the feeding tube. And so um, I just, Look at Syracuse as, you know, a real a real source of pride. And uh, again, I'm I'm grateful that I got in and that uh, my parents could afford that, and then I went because it, it I would not be anywhere near where I am without that. Well, we're very grateful, uh, Chris, for for your fighting spirit, for your family, the way that they've had your back and will continue to have your back in this battle against ALS. And I promise that we will get our Orange Alumni Network to help out however and wherever they can in this support to help you as you're looking to kick ALS. I know it's tough. I can't even imagine how much of a struggle it's been, but hearing how much support you have around you and love and, and the positive outlook too is really can't be understated how much it means to have people that are cheering you on and, and supporting you and you have that positive attitude. I wish you nothing but the best in your, in your, in your battles, Chris. And I hope that you have continued good health and uh, Hey, good luck with the flames too out there. I know that it's, it's, it's nice to, you know, be in a front office role and, and, and making some key decisions for uh, an NHL franchise is no, uh, you know, there's no understatement with the fact that you're, you're really living a dream out there when it comes to your professional career. So keep up the great work and thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks, Sean, and thank you to the entire community at Syracuse. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.